Garden Success is brought to you in part by the Arbor Gate, featuring unusual plants, artisan-created decorative pieces, and a constantly changing array of items that bring beauty, comfort, and even flavor to the home and garden. Arbor Gate, 15635 FM 2920, Tomball, Texas, 281-351-8851 or arborgate.com. Garden Success is also brought to you by The Farm Patch, 3519 South College Avenue in Bryan, 979-822-7209. Welcome to Garden Success with Skip Richter the show designed to help you have a bountiful garden and a beautiful landscape. Call in now with your lawn and garden questions at 979-845-5689 or email your questions to gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And now, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist, Skip Richter. Well, hello and welcome to Garden Success. This is a call-in radio show and we look forward to talking to you today. So let me give you a number. Uh, so you can call in. It's 845-5689, 845-5689, or by email, you can reach us at gardensuccess at tamu.edu, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And uh, if you're emailing, you can also send photos. Uh, sometimes if you're wanting a plant identified or a bug identified or something like that, it helps to have a photo. Please make sure it's in good, sharp focus. Uh, if it's fuzzy, I'll give you a fuzzy identification. And uh, it also, uh, before you send it, just check it and make sure, but attach it to your email because it's much easier and faster for me to take a good close look at when it's attached rather than embedded into the text. Well, we finally got some of that cool weather we've been waiting for, and as a result, a lot of our warm season things are not so happy out there. The okra plants are probably not growing very much right now, for example, uh, and some of the warm season crops in the garden are on their way out. Uh, they're not going to die until we have a frost, but uh, their productivity goes down. But it's time for the cool season garden. We began planting that back in September, uh, but the cool season garden includes a lot of wonderful vegetables, including a lot of the, the leafy greens that we grow. Uh, and all those blue-leafed vegetables, we refer to them as cold crops or cruciferous vegetables. And that would be things like broccoli and cabbage and cauliflower and kale and kohlrabi, lots of cuss-sounding vegetables, kohlrabi, uh, uh, see, I said cauliflower. What am I leaving out? I'm sure leaving out some. Uh, but those kind of vegetables love cool weather. They also love mildly warm weather. Uh, and so in order to get the most you can out of them, we need to get them planted quick. We're right at the tail end of the best time to plant them. Uh, you can plant them all winter, uh, but they're not going to move as fast if you wait until it gets even colder to plant them. Uh, they need a lot of nitrogen in the soil uh, in small doses uh, to really stay vigorous and grow. Because the bigger your plant is, the more you get to eat off of it. Well, certainly with kale and collards, we're eating the leaves, so we want to grow more leaves. Uh, 
uh, with cauliflower. It takes a lot of leaves to support a strong plant that makes a nice cauliflower head or broccoli. Broccoli is another example. Uh, so we want to give them not a, a large dump of nitrogen at one time, but small amounts. Every few weeks, just a little boost to keep them growing, unless your soil is so rich that they're already growing rapidly. But that's one of the keys to success for those plants. Try to avoid ever letting them be stunted or stressed in some way, and you have really good results as a result of that. If you're fortunate enough to have some artichoke transplants, if you find some or maybe you bought seed and are planting your own, uh, now's the time to set out transplants of artichokes, not seeds, but the transplants themselves. They'll grow through the winter. If we have a cold winter, you'll want to cover them up when it's going to be a very hard freeze. Uh, if it's a normal winter here, you may cover them up maybe once, maybe twice at the most, uh, and they'll carry on into spring when you enjoy the fruit of your labor, the, the artichokes themselves. Uh, this is a good time to plant the cool season leafy greens. So the big, big uh, ones for that would be spinach and lettuce. A lot of people love growing spinach and lettuce. Uh, but also some of the less common leafy greens, like arugula, also called raquette. Or uh, you could uh, plant uh, corn salad or buckhorn plantain or some other leafy greens that we don't use very much, but they're good. And it's also the time for a lot of the Asian vegetables. And those are another crop that just doesn't get planted enough in our Texas gardens. They grow fast, they're easy to grow, and, and they're fun. Uh, they're often, most of them, seem to be related to cabbage in one way or another that we're planting at this time of year. Not all, for sure, but a lot of them. So things like bok choy would be going in, uh, the um, Chinese cabbage, which if you haven't had it before, it's, it's kind of like a cross between a head of lettuce and a head of cabbage. So it's got a bit of a cabbagey flavor, but not so much. Uh, in fact, it's mild enough as a cabbage that you could even put it in a salad uh, in larger amounts and uh, it would do well. It's really easy to grow. Bok choy, like in 28 days, you can have a harvest from your bok choy. That's one of the fastest vegetables we have. Uh, there are many others. There's mizuna, uh, different types of uh, mustard, uh, finely cut leaves uh, that are popular in Asian greens as well. Uh, and uh, let's see, the tatsoi is another one that's good. And then there's the, the radishes, the large radishes. We're not talking about the little red things that uh, are, are fairly hot, uh, but these are larger. They may be round and look more like a turnip, or they may be long. And um, in fact, uh, they can be, you know, 8, 10, 12 inches long on some of them. Uh, many of those are mild, not all, but many of them are mild. So if you grew up hating radishes because of the hot peppery uh, uh, flavor in the mouth, you might try some of these milder Asian radishes. They, they really grow well and they do well for our gardens. So those are some of the things we could plant. It's a little late now for, for planting the cool season peas, but uh, green onions, multiplying onions, we could still put those in the ground. Uh, and so I hope that uh, you will give it a try. If you don't have room for a garden, at least try a container. You can grow a lot of things in a container. My favorite container for growing cool season vegetables is a wheelbarrow. I know that probably you never thought of that before, but it makes a great container. It holds a lot of soil, so you can grow more in it. 
you can uh, drill holes. You need to drill holes in the bottom so it drains well. And then just park it out in a sunny spot. And when we have one of those uh, very cold nights, like we did this past year, you just run it into the garage, close the door, and uh, when it gets warms up a little bit, you put it back out again. I had a wheelbarrow one year that grew broccoli. It had bok choy and lettuce and spinach and, uh, and even some kale all in one wheelbarrow. So that's a salad on wheels, a great way to, to grow. And for those of you who don't have room for a garden, a container is just, it's just a really good option. You can put a container anywhere there's a good sunny spot and grow a lot of good things as a result. Our phone number is 845-5689. 845-5689 or by email at gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Gardensuccess, it's one word, at tamu.edu. Uh, let's go to the emails. Uh, we had a question from Ed with some pictures of his citrus trees. Uh, his citrus trees were, the leaves were curling up. There's these little tracks through the leaves. It looks like something, uh, a little trail. And, and what it is, is a citrus leaf miner. And citrus leaf miner uh, eats in between the top and bottom layer of the leaf. And it makes this little trail that's just as thin as a thread on one end and gets fatter on the other. And as the leaf miner grows and gets bigger, the trail gets bigger. And that's, so that's what's happening. Uh, they can really make an ugly leaf. Uh, by their feeding. Uh, sometimes their feeding is so profuse that uh, the whole leaf almost turns a whitish silvery color. They're not a threat to the life of the plant, but if you had a young citrus tree and you had a lot of leaf miner damage and you removed, as, as it were, maybe half the photosynthesizing, photosynthesize, I can't even say that, that's a hard word. A lot of the leaf area that does photosynthesis, <laughs> um, that would essentially be weakening your plant and affecting your production. So it, I generally don't worry about citrus leaf miner, but when you get it established, it's going to be around. But you can use a spray containing spinosad. That's S-P-I-N-O-S-A-D. And there's a lot of brands in the market. We don't recommend brands. Uh, but the ingredient spinosad would, would uh, soak into the tissues and be around so that that leaf miner chewing on the inside is actually affected. By the way, spinosad is an organic product, so those of you who, who want to garden organically, uh, that would be a good option to use, and it's labeled for that use. You would use it every time you get a flush of growth. So, Ed, your, your citrus plants, the old leathery dark green leaves are not going to be affected by leaf miner, but when you get a flush of new growth, those tender succulent leaves are going to be affected. The fly, it's a fly that does it, lays, will lay its eggs in those leaves, and then here we go with the problem. So, anytime you have a flush of growth, that's the time to spray. Don't worry about spraying all the old leaves. Just, just get the new growth on the tips, and it'll do the trick for you. Our phone number is 845-5689, 845-5689. Uh, give us a call. Let's talk about whatever you're interested in uh, in the gardens. Out and about in the community right now on tonight, Thursday night, November 4th, the Native Plant Society's local post oak chapter is having their online meeting, and it's going to be on composting with nature. Uh, uh, Rachel Siwinski, I hope I pronounced that right, Rachel, uh, has been uh, 
presenting on gardening, uh, native plants, wildscaping, water conservation, you know, for 24 years now. And her talk will help you find a composting style that leads to a very productive no-waste garden, even when nothing goes as planned. And you've heard me drone on about this in the past, but there is no reason to let a clipping of a grass blade or a fallen tree leaf leave your property. That grass is taking all the nutrients that it needs to make grass to grow and growing leaves and grass blades. And so when you bag them up and you put it at the curb and have somebody haul it away, you essentially have just rented the fertilizer you purchased because that good nutrient is heading right out the back door. And instead, when you recycle your clippings, you're putting them back in to decompose and release those nutrients. And over the course of a mowing season, your lawnmower puts out more fertilizer than your fertilizer spreader does. Uh, that's, that's a concept to think about uh, to recycle those clippings. The same is true with the tree leaves. And Rachel, I hope I'm not taking all your, your thunder here, uh, but uh, when the tree leaves, about 75% of the nutrients that tree took up during the year are in its leaves. So are you going to send those away or are you going to look at it like what it is? Free, slow release, organic fertilizer and, and mulching materials that can be recycled. So uh, if you'd like to hear more about that, Native Plant Society, Post Oak Chapter tonight, 6.30 to 7.30 p.m., Composting with Nature. And the way you get there is their web link, which is tinyurl.com slash frogfruit. Tiny, T-I-N-Y-U-R-L.com slash frogfruit, one word. Uh, Frog Fruit's my favorite native ground cover. And that's, that's a good a good website name for the Post Oak Native Plant Society. Uh, let's see, Thursdays, uh, this evening also, uh, Lisa Whittlesey, our Extension Program Specialist and the International Junior Master Gardener Program Coordinator, uh, will be leading a discussion at the Larry Ringer Library in their meeting room called Garden to Vase. It's again, 6.30 to 7.30. And you can call Ashley uh, at the Larry Ringer Public Library. The program is free and open to the public. And if you've never heard Lisa talk before, she is a magician when it comes to taking uh, landscape materials and putting them together into wonderful arrangements and holiday decor. And you know, if you're having a, a gathering, uh, you need to hear this before uh, you go out and start clipping berries and branches and flowers and other things, uh, you will really enjoy it. You get to see it live happening right before you. All right, our phone number is 845-5689, 845-5689, or by email at gardensuccess.tamu uh, or at tamu.edu. Uh, Thursday today also, this is a, boy, this is a, no, I'm sorry, t uh, Friday, tomorrow. Uh, the Antique Rose Emporium is having its annual Fall Festival of Roses. This gives you a chance to tour their gardens, to smell the roses, and just have a really enjoyable time out there uh, in, at the Antique Rose Emporium. So this will be two days of things going on. On Friday, Georgia Monroe. Georgia is the uh, uh, owner and operator of Base Camp Farms, which is out south toward Millican. It's one of our, it's our local uh, uh, flower production 
uh, farm, and she'll be talking about making good cut flower arrangements out there. It'll be a, kind of a hands-on activity. You'll get to create a small vase arrangement uh, out at the Rantique Rose Emporium. And on Saturday, Jane English will be talking about companion planting and also growing your own mushrooms, things that you might grow uh, by inoculating in a log. That's how shiitakes are grown and some other mushrooms. So you'll actually uh, get to learn about how to do that. That's all at the Antique Rose Emporium. You can call them if uh, to get more information at 836-5548. 836-5548. And by the way, you should always listen to this show with a pen and pencil or a pencil and piece of paper handy. In the rare event that I might say something worth remembering, or uh, when I give out all these names and URLs that uh, uh, you want to make sure and be able to contact. Well, again, our number is 845 5689, and we're going to go to the phones now and talk to Dan. Hello, Dan. Hi, Skip. Uh, I had a question about minimum container size for the fall vegetables. Um, so I, I planted some in one-gallon containers, and I planted some in the ground. And uh, what I'm talking about is like broccoli, kale, cauliflower. Mm -hmm. And the ones in the ground are more than twice the size than yes. the ones in the containers. Yes. So uh, what would you recommend as a minimum size for a container for any of these types? Dan, that is a, a great question, and you are very wise to be asking it uh, as you observe those things because we can grow a lot in containers, but we need to have adequate soil volume. Uh, in the ground, that broccoli plant has a root system reaching out way past the edges of the broccoli plant and going down fairly deep, in fact. Uh, when you put it in a container, the whole root system is dependent on that small amount of soil in the container for all the water and all the nutrients that it gets. Now, in the summertime, when the demands are high on our container vegetables, we're watering once, sometimes twice a day if the container is not adequately sized. Uh, and we're fertilizing often as well. In the cool season, it's not so much the case because the demands are lower, but still, it's always better to have a larger container than a smaller one. And what happens, and this happens to me, it, you know, you, you're remembering to water all the time, and then something happens and you forget to water one day. And when you get back to it, they're starting to wilt or they're stressed, even if it's not visible. And that plant, its, its growth and production is decreasing because of that. And you can water and fertilize and get them going again, but you've lost ground in the process. So getting directly to your question for cool season, if I were growing something smaller like a lettuce or a spinach plant, uh, you could probably do that in a one gallon container, but I think you'd be better with two and a half gallons. If I were growing broccoli or cabbage or kale or any of those vegetables that are gonna get up to knee high maybe, uh, I would wanna have a five gallon container or even larger than that. Uh, and then you want a good quality soil mix that holds moisture and nutrients but yet drains well. You want drainage in the bottom of the container because that can lead to problems. And uh, you want to fertilize regularly in small doses. I generally don't recommend the soluble liquid fertilizers. They're organic and they're synthetic types of that. But I generally don't recommend them because that's a more expensive way to put out nutrients and it doesn't last as long as a granular would. But in this case, uh, you, I think it would be a good idea to be boosting them along with a very dilute, follow the label, very dilute mix every time you water. Uh, and so that 
that would kind of help get them going. And I think you would not see that dramatic size difference. Okay, great. And if some of them have bolted, um, are they done for? Or can you, we're still going to produce? We're talking about just broccoli here? Uh, I believe it's a cauliflower. A cauliflower. Okay. Yeah, once cauliflower produces a head, it's done. And you pull it up and put something else in. Uh, to okay. keep, keep those containers busy. Uh, broccoli, some varieties are really good at side per, uh, shoots. You cut the main head out and you get all these little side shoots of broccoli, so you get to keep harvesting for a while. You don't get as much as you did from the main head, but you still get more. Some varieties of broccoli are not as good at that. They produce the main head, but not as many side shoots. So it kind of depends on the variety that you're growing. You don't happen to remember from the tag on that, do you? Uh, I have it right in front of me, ah, and it's good. Um, Walth, Waltham 29. Waltham, uh-huh. Waltham's an older variety, and it'll produce some side shoots for you. Uh, it's one of the older varieties, so it's it's the the older ones are typically what you find available, you know, in, in garden centers. Uh, so the new stuff, it takes a while to, to make it to that mass production level, I guess. Great. All right. Thank you very much. All right, Dan. Thanks for the call. Bye. Bye-bye. Our number, 845-5689, or email gardensuccess at tamu.edu, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Let's see, uh, on November 6th, uh, that would be Saturday, uh, there is a art market at D Gallery, which is at 930 North Rosemary in Bryan, uh, not too far from KBTX station over there. Uh, and it's from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. at the gallery. It'll be a chance for you to meet some of the young uh, artists, uh, visual artists. Uh, they'll be uh, showcasing paintings and sculptures, photography, jewelry, handcrafted items. They're going to have live music, free art workshops for kids, a crafting station, and treats for sale, including coffee, pastries, and savory fruits from local bakers. That sounds fun. I may have to do that. Uh, friends and family are welcome, and of course the event is free. That's at the gallery, uh, the art market, and uh, kind of a little mini festival they have going on over there. And speaking of things going on on Saturday, uh, our South Brazos County Farmers Market is uh, at uh, on Main Street down in uh, Bryan. Uh, and they're going to be open from 8 a.m. to noon. They'll have all kinds of products uh, made by Texans, grown in Texas. That's plants, organic meat, uh, free-range eggs, baked goods, local honey, jams, jellies. Uh, I really enjoy getting out to our farmer's markets and try to do that every week because you get to, you get to look the person that grew your food in the eye. You get to support our local farms and markets, and, and it's, this isn't just farming things. I mean, there was a there was a booth that had homemade dog treats, and I took them home and tried them, and my golden retriever approved. Now every Saturday morning, she wakes me up at 5 a.m. going, hey, it's time to get to the market and get some more of those treats. Uh, so that's the Brazos Valley Farmer's Market. We have other farmer's markets. There's the South Brazos County Farmer's Market, and uh, that 
is occurs twice uh, on Tuesdays from noon to five and on Fridays from noon to five. And that's at the corner of University and Glenhaven. So the Scott and White Clinic out at the bypass in University, it's right beside that, right across the street, not the, the side of the feeder road, but on the other side, that little street, it's right there. And again, they have many locally grown things. And occasionally you even find a food truck out there too, which is kind of fun. All right, let's go back to the phones and our number again, 845-5689, and we're going to talk to Mark. Hey, Mark. Howdy, Skip. How are you, sir? I'm well, thank you. I had a question about compost and blending in um, manure or compost with the garden soil. If okay. You can purchase it uh, local mm -hmm. um, areas. Land, uh, stone and turf and right. such places. Mm -hmm. um, so you can buy the best grade garden soil they have. You can buy, I believe, compost, and I think you can even get some uh, mushroom mulch mm -hmm. sometimes from Madisonville, our friends there. Mm -hmm. So if you were going to uh, buy, pick up loads full of that, hoping that you'd get family to help distribute it through the yard, which is always like, you know, who knows, maybe yes, maybe no. But the question is, would you get the garden soil or would you get the best garden soil and mix it with um, a third of that, a third compost and a third um, mushroom mulch or whatever okay. combination? Gotcha. Well, that's that's a good question, and it's actually several in one. So let me let me yeah. try to do justice to the question sure. here. Yes, yeah, I heard you say manure early on, and, and with manures, they need to be very well decomposed. Uh, because there is the potential, especially if the if it includes like poultry manure in the mix, of some of the human pathogens like salmonella, for example, that we wouldn't want splashing up on our vegetables we're about to eat. Uh, so very well decomposed. I like to take it and mix it into the soil uh, deeply. And uh, then uh, you maybe put a mulch over the surface. But people have been using manure in the garden forever. Uh, but th th that is the potential drawback to it. Uh, now, as far as the Madisonville mushroom compost, that's a really rich compost. It has a lot of nutrients in it. So you don't need to use as much of that as you might from composts made out of, you know, tree leaves and branch mm -hmm. trimmings and other things. Uh, but uh, And it also comes with a, a little bit of a sodium and salt type right. content, which you can drench it really good and wash the, most of that out. But just be okay. aware of that. The The composts that are sold at local garden uh, soil yards mm -hmm. around the state uh, is, is just a wide mix. And every, every purveyor is going to make theirs a little differently, maybe out of different feedstocks. Uh, and uh, feedstocks meaning... Uh, you know, is it is it brush trimmings uh, that the power line companies have dumped off? Is it is it yard uh, waste and, and so on? Uh, if it's well decomposed, it's fully gone through the cycle and it's been screened properly so that you're not getting giant chunks of wood in it. Uh, it it ought to do well for you. Um, the um, the thing to keep in mind is if you've never improved your soil, you might mix three or four inches even 
uh, in, probably mm-hmm. four is too much, maybe three inches in. But if you've got a garden that's ongoing, you would just need an inch or so each time that you're going to renovate and switch from cool season to warm season or something like that. Uh, but it works really well. So some people garden by taking their native soil and mixing compost into it to make a mix for the beds. And mm-hmm. other people just put a box on the ground and then they buy a mix that's already put together and drop it in. So either way is fine. You'll just find that a lot of the mixes, especially if they're a little bit new, uh, Mm -hmm. they tie up nitrogen and you don't always have the best garden that first go round. So be patient, Uh, things will mellow out and do a lot better over time. One one other thing I need to say about manure is if, if it's large animal manure like cattle and horses and they grazed on a pasture, that was treated with brush control products, which a lot of grass pastures are. Uh, That stuff, certain compounds uh, can be so persistent that they go through the animal, through the digestive system, and they're present in the manure at levels high enough to damage garden plants, especially Mm. sensitive things like green beans, tomatoes, and and Mm. grape grape vines, for example. Um, And so you just want to know the source of your manure before you, you decide to go with it. So uh, they say don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Well, you, you better sh- sure look at your gift <laughs> horse manure in the mouth, if you will. Okay. Because you want to know. Uh, because once that happens, you know, uh, right. uh, picloram okay. and other ingredients like that that are great for controlling brush, they're persistent. And you've done something to your garden that's going to, it's going to take a while to, to yeah. undamage it, uh, to fix that damage. Yeah, truth be told, I've, I've wondered if, some of the live oaks that have deteriorated and died, the old majestic ones, if folks might have uh, sprayed that extended release herbicide with the Roundup, the mm-hmm. short acting, yeah. and if it accumulated, I don't know if that's true. Probably not. I've never seen yeah. that. So therefore, I can't say it, it couldn't happen, but uh, I've not seen that as a problem. Oaks have their own complex of issues that uh, combine together to take mm-hmm. take them down. And once, you know, plants are like people in a sense that mm-hmm. when you weaken the organism, it's more likely to get sick and have major yeah. problems. And so we can do things that weaken our lawn, we can do things that, that uh, stress our trees, and that often is part of a series of combining factors that take them out. Right, right. Okay, thanks very much, Skip. It's always great listening to you. Thank well, you. thank you. That's very kind. I appreciate the thank call. You. Be safe. Bye. You too. Our phone number is 845-5689, 845-5689, or email gardensuccess at tamu.edu, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Uh, I want to go back to the emails uh, since we're talking about email. And we had one from uh, Annette. Annette uh, uh, is asking about mushrooms. She sent several pictures of mushrooms. And uh, there's some little kiddos that are uh, in a school, maybe, or other setting where children will be around that are around. And the question is, are these poisonous or not? And I'm going to I'm going to first say that I have no idea. I, I am not a mycologist, and looking at those mushrooms, I can't tell you. But then I'm going to give you the big answer for everybody that has mushrooms in the yard and everything, and that is 
don't take a chance. Um, there's two sayings that I think tell the story well. Uh, one is that there's old wild mushroom eaters and they're bold wild mushroom eaters. Bold wild mushroom eaters are adventurous. They look at it and give it a try, see how it is. But there's no old bold wild mushroom eaters. The other one is all mushrooms are edible, some only once. So I would I would never take a chance with children around mushrooms and you know wonder I would never if you're my if you like to go out uh, and gather the truffles of the forest and things that's fine but you sure better be very well trained because uh, it's not like all of them out there are going to kill you but there's some that can and uh, so you want to be really careful with that so Annette I would I would not get anywhere close to that one for sure but thanks for the thanks for the question because I think that's something other people have probably wondered about as well uh, Rosemary emails about uh, where can I buy uh, crepe myrtles here locally and is this a good time to plant them uh, this is the best time to plant them any woody ornamental or perennial that's that's cold hardy in our area uh, planting in the fall gives them all winter for the roots to settle in, to begin to grow, to begin to establish, so that when hot weather arrives next year, you've got the best plant possible for tackling and facing that stressful time. So yes, plant them now. They're available around town. Uh, different garden centers have them. Uh, so you ought to be able to find them around here. The challenge with crepe myrtles is there are some varieties that are just a lot better than others. Uh, varieties that have more powdery mildew resistance. Uh, that's a disease that attacks crepe myrtles. And uh, if, it, if, it, uh, if the crepe myrtle variety has a Native American tribe name, uh, something like Arapaho or something like Natchez, uh, that has been bred by USDA to be mildew resistant. So that's a clue. There are others that are mildew resistant, but that, that's one clue. Uh, I have a list online. If you, if you go online and you Google my name, Skip Richter and Crepe Myrtle, uh, somewhere near the top will be a list that uh, Dr. Parsons and I in San Antonio put together years ago. It's an old list. It needs to be updated. But we have them listed by height, by color, and, and disease resistance as well. So you can look through there. Uh, I know that... Uh, we need to update it because you're going to see one. Oh, this is the perfect one. Then you can't find it. And I'm sorry for that. Uh, but you want to pick your crepe myrtles. First of all, disease resistance. Second, you want to pick them by their mature height. Uh, they don't sell crepe myrtles with saws, but you'd think they did when you look around town at the way crepe myrtles are pruned. Why buy a Natchez that wants to get 35 feet and plant it and try to keep it 10, 12 feet, 15 feet high. You're just constantly work. You know, you're just constantly sawing around on that plant. Why not plant one that gets 12 or 15 feet high? And there are there are crepe myrtles that get two or three feet high at the most. And uh, then there's of course the time types that get larger. So if you look at that chart, it'll give you the idea because we have pictures of them, and you can you can look. You can go down to the height you want. You can say, "Ooh, I like lavender," and pick a lavender colored one, which is kind of different. And then you can see whether it's resistant or not. We even have fall color in, in the chart. Uh, but whether it's that chart or others that hopefully are more modern or more up to date, uh, I would spend some time looking for the ones you want. Pick two or three because those are going to be hard to find. And you may have to drive a little bit. 
to find a specialty one that uh, you really want. The other thing about crepe myrtles is now we have crepe myrtle bark scale that's everywhere around this area and many other areas. And uh, crepe myrtle bark scale is very difficult to control. And so we have some products that can control it, but they have secondary problems with those products. And, and that is one of the things that keeps me from putting crepe myrtle on one of the top lists we have. I mean, my goodness, it's a plant that blooms for three months in the summer. That's wonderful. And has beautiful winter interest and, and bark, um, you know, the branches and trunk. Uh, but the, the problem with the bark scale is if we use a good systemic product that can control them, that product gets into the flowers and it affects the uh, pollen and or nectar, I'm, I think in both places. But uh, years ago, entomologists here in Bryan College Station did a study uh, looking at what bees were bringing back to the hive in the summer. And crepe myrtle was the number one pollen coming back to the hive from honeybees in the summer. Uh, because it's a good food source in the summer when not a lot else is blooming. And so if we're working to treat the bark scale with the systemics that work well, uh, we are affecting the health of the hive, if you will. And so it's a trade-off that, you know, everybody has a, a different position on where they're going to land on it. But I, I'm not real crazy about uh, anything else that makes it harder for bees and other and our native pollinators, honeybees and our native pollinators as well. Uh, to survive. So that that's some food for thought on that, Rosemary. Our phone number, 845-5689. 845-5689. Give us a call and uh, save all the people that are having to listen to me drone on here uh, from, from the pain and agony of that. So we'd love to talk to you about what's going on in your, your yard and your garden. Uh, we had a question on wildflowers come by email from Shannon. Shannon has been building a 1,500 square foot area for a wildflower garden. She has destroyed, uh, sprayed herbicide to kill the weeds, and now all is ready, but the area is full of green sprouts of weeds and grass again. <laughs> that, that is true, Sharon. Wherever the soil is bare, nature plants a weed. That's how it works. So can I spray again and still have time to plant wildflowers? How long should I wait after spraying? before planting seed. Uh, most of the time, because you're trying to kill broadleaf and grassy weeds, uh, something like glyphosate is the product that gets used. And if you read the label, I think, and you, you need to read the label yourself, but as I recall, you can spray it. It needs about a week to really move in and fully, you know, make sure you're killing those more difficult to control weeds. Uh, and then you can rototill it and within and a week later go ahead and plant. Now you may get by with cutting those times a little bit shorter, but uh, that would be about a two week delay. So here we are at the beginning. That's getting a little bit late. And so I, I don't know if you, that's a large area. So, you know, going out and hoeing the weeds out is not really practical. Uh, I might just go ahead and plant them as well. Uh, the blue bonnets in nature grow among weeds, and if the weeds are dense and tall, the blue bonnets are not going to do well. But I think at this point in the season, I'd try to get those seeds in the ground as soon as I could because they, they just need a little more time. Uh, so hope that hopefully that helps, Sharon. Well, our number, 845-5689, if you'd like to call, let's go back to the phones and talk to Charlene. Hello, Charlene. Hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Oh, good. 
Uh, I have a question about mature trees. Uh, uh, some of them have large uh, roots that flare out from the trunk of the tree, and then sometimes smaller roots circle the tree and cross over those big tree, uh, big roots, mm-hmm. and it causes a lot of tension on the big root. Mm-hmm. So I've cut some of those circling surface roots uh, where they cross the big root. Should I cut those smaller roots at the base of the trunk, or is just cutting them uh, in half to release the tension enough? Well, the the concern about the roots around a tree are when it's a young tree and you have a circling root, as the trunk grows bigger and the root grows bigger, the root ends up strangling the trunk and preventing that flow through the up and down through the the plant. When you already have a large tree like this, it's not going to grow dramatically in size. And so I'm not as worried about things like that. I understand that it is putting pressure on, as you said, on that big root. Uh, If you want to cut them just to relieve that, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, But uh, it's, it's not as important. And as far as the small roots, I wouldn't worry about them at all. Oh, okay. All right, good. And then also, uh, about piling stuff uh, up against the uh, tree trunk, the yes. mature trees, yes. uh, raking leaves and just piling up uh, against the trunk or putting lots of uh, mulch at the base of the trunk. Yes. Don't. It's, oh, yeah, don't. Don't. Don't do that. Uh, that's done. It, it, it's not so much here, although I've seen it in Marine Color Station. But, boy, you get on to Houston and mulch volcanoes rule the world down there. <laughs> and it's bad for the tree that keeping that bottom, the trunk is not made to be underground. It's not made to be sopping wet and, and gooey, decomposing organic matter right up against it. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, a few leaves a couple inches up on the trunk is not the deal. It, but piling stuff up against the trunk, that's a no-no. And uh, people shouldn't do it. Uh, sometimes you'll get uh, pl- trees that try to even root up into that area when they keep it like that. And that, that shouldn't be. You know, we do a lot of things because somebody else did them. And uh, <laughs> that's, that. <laughs> yeah. unfortunately, we have those horticulture practices. You know, a homeowner mm-hmm. that goes out and prunes all their crepe myrtles off at, at six feet high uh, right. just because they see it all over town. It's all over town because landscape crews need something to do in the winter. Uh, and, and it's all over town because people think that's how you do it, and they demand the people they hire to do it that way. Uh, so it... But just because something is done a certain way is no good reason to do it. Okay. Okay, great. Well, I won't worry about those little circling roots because these, these trees are enormous. Oh, Huge boy. trees. Uh-huh. Well, you are fortunate to have a tree like that. And <laughs> Okay, thank you. Yeah, uh-huh. Maggie, thank you for the call. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Our phone number, 845-5689. Got about 15 minutes left, so if you've been thinking about calling, uh, go ahead and do that. Sometimes at the end of the show, we'll have a whole bunch of people try to call, and we can't get everybody on. And so we want to we wanna be able to take time with each of your calls. So give us a call sooner rather than later if you'd like to call today. Uh, we've talked about a number of different things. Uh, we had a question that came in via email uh, from Elizabeth, and Elizabeth was wanting to um, um, find out how to listen to past shows, and she asked about uh, doing that on um, on YouTube. I tell you what, I, I'm sorry, I've neglected someone sitting on hold. Let me stop and take that, and then I'll come back. Hey, Maggie, sorry about that. 
Do we have uh, Maggie? Skip? Yes. Yes. It's quite all right to keep me. No worry. Okay. Uh, I just have two questions. Okay. Speaking of crepe myrtles, I have a lot of little volunteers I wanted to dig up and kind of put in pots mm-hmm. and stuff. Is this the best time, or should I wait till the leaves go away? Well, it's the best time. Uh, the leaves are essentially shutting down, so you can do that now just fine. But let's talk about whether you want to do that or not. Um, some okay. some of the, the sprouts you see are coming from roots. Great myrtles right. will do that. And so that is genetically identical to the plant you're cutting it away from. But if it's a seedling, then it's not. And when you're breeding varieties, whether it's a new peach or a new crepe myrtle, they'll go through 10,000 and more different seedlings to find one that is truly the superior one. So the chances, if you plant a peach seed out of a peach or a crepe myrtle seed, uh, it, the chances of getting one that's the size you want, the color you want, the uh, powdery mildew resistance, and all these other features is uh, uh, the, the color of the trunk bark, uh, it's it's slim and so the chances are they won't be the equal quality to the one that you you the to the mother plant okay and also another question uh, i have a lot of knockout roses and they're getting all kind of big is this the time we're sort of wait till february to kind of cut this stems back and then a possible root from there from the cut stem to make to make cuttings um this is um it's probably a little late to root a cutting you might get some to root uh, depending on the variety they don't all have the same tendency to root well uh, and the type of wood you do it you don't want a, a, a rose cutting to be old wood you want it to be um, what we call semi-hardwood, so it's it's in between the succulent stage and the woody stage, and so okay. it, you know it it has some of those strands of lignin going through it, but not too much. So you might get away with that. As far as when to prune them, you can prune now if you want. Roses tend to grow in cooler weather, and uh, as a result, um, the um, um, ch- the chances of of uh, getting a resprout when we have a, a period of 75 to 80 degree weather in November, which can still happen, uh, it is, is fairly high. So I generally wait until uh, later winter to do the rose pruning. No problem. I'll just wait until Valentine's Day. Uh, yeah, because they're, they're just blooming like gangbusters right now. So uh, I just didn't want to know if that would affect it. Okay, that's all for today. That's all I need. All Thank right. you so much for the advice. Okay, thank you very much. Appreciate the call. Well, I believe we have another Maggie on the line. Oh, excuse me, Karen. All right. Hey, Karen, how are you today? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you for taking my call. You bet. Um, I have a question. I have a question about palm trees. I have some tall palm trees, three of them, and they they're not showing any new fronds this year. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of the it, they had many dead fronds on them, which uh, what, uh, fell off in the winds of last week, mm-hmm. and now I have my HOA sending homeowners association <laughs> sending me emails saying you, they're a safe the trees are a safety hazard. My question is, how do I tell if they are still alive or not, or how long should I wait? Yeah, I I, I understand your pain. Uh, I I think my HOA writes more love letters to me than they do to anybody <laughs> in the neighborhood. But <laughs> we won't go there. Um, the 
the palm trees took a really hard hit in last February's freeze. It was just too cold for most of them. We have we learned a lot about which palms are hardiest because of that. It, is your palm tree you, how tall is it? Is it really tall or you know is it a smaller plant? The tallest one is I have three of them. The tallest one is probably thirty feet. The shortest one is about fifteen. The okay. sago palms came back, but not the tall ones aren't doing anything now. Okay, well, yeah, and and sagos are, are we call them sago palms, but they're really not palms. So that's a whole different critter. Oh, but but okay. the the Thanks. ones if if the top if you're not seeing new growth, definitely by now you should have seen it by mid midsummer. Uh, that tree is dead. And uh, there are some types of palms, just a few, that can send out little pups off the bottom where you where the, this kind of palm will form a clump of trunks. Uh, but that's not what you're dealing with. And so because the top bud is dead, the tree is dead. A palm does not have the ability to produce new growth anywhere but from the terminal bud at the top of the trunk. So when um. it dies, you watch it all summer and nothing comes out, it's dead. And, and you just have a fence post or a, a telephone pole sitting in the yard. Uh, so I uh, just need to go ahead and take it out. Okay, thank Sorry you. Sorry to That's be the bearer helpful. of bad news. Yeah, I'd rather know and take care of it. Than now I know how to move forward. Well, good for okay, you. Okay, thank you very much. All right, Karen, thank you for the call. Uh, Ten minutes left. Got time for another call or two. Uh, 845-5689, 845-5689, or by email at gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Uh, and getting back to Elizabeth's question, past programs. So if you want to listen to a past program, they're not on YouTube. Um, they're on kamufm.org, the, the radio station's FM uh, the the uh, radio station's webpage, and if you go there and you just do a Google search for uh, Garden Success or uh, or a search for Garden Success or a Google search for K A M U Garden Success, you can get right to it, and they have all the past episodes going a little bit back, uh, where you can listen to previous guests. Uh, maybe uh, there was something on a show you want to go back and refer to. You can listen to those uh, online. Now YouTube, I do have a YouTube channel. Uh, but you, you'd have to type my name in, Skip Richter, into YouTube. And what you'll get is apparently there is a video game that has uh, something about Skip Richter in it. I can't remember. It's not me. Uh, it's not even a name. And that's the top result. Uh, I get second billing with my own name uh, in YouTube. And you can find my channel. And I've got about 200 little short clips on there on different things that I've done many years ago. Uh, and you can check out those. But I'm, you may have be kind of thinking of two different things, listening to past programs versus listening uh, to me on YouTube. So, uh, Elizabeth, uh, good luck with finding those and hope you enjoy that. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about uh, some um, issues in the lawn that we're seeing some problems with now. There's two big things around town showing up in our lawns. One of them is take all, I'm sorry, uh, large patch. A large patch makes those big brown circles, and we've been seeing them for a few weeks now. Uh, it is a rhizoctonia fungus that loves uh, milder temperatures and wet conditions. And if you fertilize your lawn a lot, it seems to be worse, either that or the circles just show up really well in bright green grass. Uh, but uh, 
once you see the circles, you can't fix that spot uh, because it's rotting the leaves off of the runner, but the runner's alive. And so sometimes you'll see some regreening starting in the center of the circle, but basically the grass is not growing in the winter much. And so you get to look at that all through winter and when it warms up and the grass begins regrowing, it, the, the circles all disappear. Uh, so if you want to prevent it, uh, you got to do so before the circles appear or very early in that process. And there are fungicides you can use. There's a number of them at the garden centers that will help prevent uh, large patch. So it's if you have a yard and every year large patch is a problem, number one, I would look at your fertilizing and watering uh, that probably is making it worse. Uh, but then consider maybe in very late September or early October, uh, uh, putting on a uh, preventative fungicide uh, to deal with it, especially when you get a cold front in and or a cooler front, not cold, but some of those early cooler fronts with some rain, it just seems to really make it pop up. So that that's what's happening around town. The good news is your grass is not dead. Uh, that would be take all root rot doing that. The other thing in our yards around town is the slender aster. Slender asters are little daisy-like flowers or aster-like flowers that are uh, not even hardly the size of a dime that are white, but if you look close, they kind of have a pink, a very pale lavender color to them, and they are popping up now. They've been growing all year. They sprouted last spring, and they sort of were traveling incognito in our lawns all through the, the year, and then here comes the fall, and they pop up. They send out their blooms and produce their seeds. Each of those produces little tiny seeds that float around uh, and, and therefore spread the, the problem. If you let it go to seed and cast those seeds, you have just, I don't know, put out 100,000 more uh, potential uh, slender aster plants. So get out in the yard. Uh, at this point in time, once the weeds become reproductive, that is, they bloom and set seeds, they are not going to be controlled by uh, post-emergent weed control products. So don't even bother trying to spray them now. Uh, get out and pull them. They, they're coming out of one spot in the yard. Sometimes you'll have a, 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 a root that uh, it's coming out of one root spot in the yard and it branches horizontally in all directions. And uh, by the way, this weed, you'll see it in vacant lots and it'll be three feet tall. But in our yards, because of our mowing, the weed goes horizontal and then it pops up. And so as you follow that, you want to get that main root that they're all coming from and pull them out and get them out of there. And you will save yourself a lot of headaches. It doesn't eliminate them, but it prevents them from proliferating next year in your lawn so much. Um, Slender Aster is, it, it's kind of a pretty low flower. But boy, I tell you, when I see them, I have them in my yard. In fact, I've spent uh, probably six weekend Saturday mornings for about an hour with a five-gallon bucket just pulling up all the ones. The minute they put on a bloom, you can find them. And areas that I'd completely cleaned out, now I, have, I see a bloom or two popping up, and that just cues me to go in there and get that one too. So uh, Slender Aster is very difficult to control. There are pre-emergents that will control it. But the fact that it, it um, uh, germinates all through the growing season, uh, you would just have to apply and reapply those. Uh, the best approach, like all of our lawn weed problems, is to grow a dense, healthy lawn. If you have a lawn that's thin, 
wherever nature, wherever the sunlight hits the soil, nature plants a weed, you're constantly going to be fighting weeds and you'll just be on a herbicide treadmill fighting them all the time. Uh, and the herbicides can have negative effects. They can affect the rooting of your St. Augustine grass, uh, certain ones that do that. Uh, they can affect, uh, if they wash down in the soil and they're over applied, they can affect even your woody ornamentals that have roots in that area. Uh, and the, and the broadleaf post-emergence, when it gets above 85 degrees, most of those will, will weaken your St. Augustine. So the best approach to all your weed problems uh, is to grow a dense, healthy lawn. So proper mowing, proper watering, and proper fertilizing. Mowing, I would set a St. Augustine lawnmower at uh, three inches, even four inches high, uh, and mow regularly to create the most shade you can on the surface of the soil. Uh, you want to water with a good deep soaking infrequently. So uh, once a week is enough for your lawn. And in the shade, it's more than you need to water. Uh, but a good soaking infrequently. Uh, and then as far as fertilizing, you want to put on a half a pound to a pound of nitrogen in the spring after you've mowed the lawn twice. If you, if you fertilize in February, the weeds are going to thank you and the grass is going to still be snoozing uh, like a teenager at 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning. Uh, so you want to wait until you've mowed the lawn twice and then it's time to fertilize. And then in the fall, if you want to, if your lawn needs a boost, you can put some fertilizer on uh, in early October again. Uh, but mow water, fertilize your way to a good lawn. The other thing I found that works really well, and, and I have to give credit to uh, Felder Rushing, who is a horticulturist in Mississippi and quite a character, I might say. Uh, his, his favorite weed control technique is to take off your glasses and suddenly the whole lawn looks a beautiful green color. In other words, he's kind of a, uh, a low-key, let's not sweat over everything, you know. And if you're the person that has to have the pristine, pristine perfect lawn, uh, herbicides are going to be part of your world. But, uh, you know, there are some weeds that are pernicious, and they are persistent, and you better deal with them with a herbicide because they just aren't going to go away. But with 90% of the problems we have in weeds or the potential problems, if you just mow water and fertilize, you will grow your way out of the problem over time. So I'll let you decide how tolerant you can be of that in-between period where you've got the, the weeds and you're, you're trying to get used to them. But uh, taking, your, taking your glasses off is a great, great idea. Uh, let's see. We, okay, there was one other thing that I wanted uh, to talk about. Uh, it, this is the best season to plant woody ornamentals and perennials. And so when you plant a woody ornamental, that is a tree or shrub that grew in a little pot that is a tiny fraction of what the root zone should be. And the roots are wrapped around in the pot. And the hardest thing for people to do is to cut those roots, but you have to. You will not be happy with the results if you don't. So in three or four places around that cylinder of roots, after you've pulled it out of the pot, use hand pruners or a, a box cutter knife and just cut down vertically through all those roots within three weeks. When it's in the ground, you will have new roots, uh, several roots replacing where one root was, and they'll be growing out into the soil, and your tree will have a chance of survival. So don't hesitate to cut those roots. The tree can survive. It won't hurt it, and especially because you're fall planting it, uh, it'll do just fine. 
Well, you've been listening to Garden Success. We're here every Thursday from 12 to 1 to answer your gardening questions. In the meantime, if you'd like to send us an email to answer on the air next Thursday, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Have fun in the garden. You've been listening to Garden Success with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist Skip Richter. Join us again next week as Skip discusses your questions about gardening and landscaping in the Brazos Valley. Garden Success is brought to you in part by the Arbor Gate, featuring unusual plants, artisan-created decorative pieces, and a constantly changing array of items that bring beauty, comfort, and even flavor to the home and garden. Arbor Gate, 15635 FM 2920, Tomball, Texas, 281-351-8851 or arborgate.com. Garden Success is also brought to you by the Farm Patch, 3519 South College Avenue in Bryan, 979-822-7209.